Thank you, Pastor Andrew, for that introduction and for inviting me to speak. Um, for those of you watching at home, uh, if you could just reach forward in your seat back pocket, you'll find a pair of 3D glasses. <laughs> just a little live stream humor for you to get us started. So we're going to <laughs> be talking about fear pretty broadly this morning. But before we do, I want to just acknowledge that there is a lot to be afraid of today. I don't think we need much help realizing that, considering most of you are watching this through a screen and smell of hand sanitizer. But fear is tricky. It can be hard to pin down, because we don't like to admit when we're afraid. Often admitting we're afraid feels a little bit like admitting that we're helpless. And it's interesting, because little kids, they admit that they're scared all the time. They'll cry when they're scared. When they have a nightmare, they don't hesitate to wake up their parents. But as they get older, you begin to see that they try to hide their fear. It's as if they've been told that being afraid is bad and that they need to just put on a brave face. And as we get older, we learn to do the same. We hide and suppress and mask our fear. We call it stress or worry. Uh, we try to mask it with anger. But putting on a brave face doesn't actually get rid of the fear. Unconfronted fear grows, and it takes control of our thinking and then our actions. I want to also acknowledge that fear isn't always bad. It can be a very helpful servant. It can warn us when something requires action. And sometimes fear can warn us that we need to be cautious, which in the right circumstances, like these, can protect those who are most vulnerable. Fear is a useful servant, but it has been a bad master to us all. And it becomes our master when we allow it to control our choices. So today, we're going to talk about fear head on. But I want you to know this. You can be a Christian, and you can feel afraid. Those are not mutually exclusive. It's not a sin to feel afraid. You can have faith while at the same time feeling fear. And when God constantly tells us to not be afraid in the Bible, it's because he knows that we will indeed become afraid. God wants us to know that we don't have to be controlled by the fear that we feel. We're going to be reading Matthew 14, 22 to 33 together. And it's probably a passage that's familiar to many of you. I personally love this passage because it's full of people being people and Jesus being Jesus. So Matthew 14, starting in verse 22 and along the way, I want you to pay close attention to two things, the role of wind and the role of fear in the story. All right. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Well into the night, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from the land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Jesus came toward them walking on the sea very early in the morning. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them, have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. We're going to pause right there for a second because one thing to note is that for the ancient Hebrews and most likely for the disciples, the sea represented chaos. It was powerful, it was unpredictable, it was scary. Another thing to note is that 
when reading the Bible, when these accounts were written, they didn't use things like bolded characters or italics or emojis, things that we rely on heavily today. But they relied on things like repetition and structure to make a point. And structurally, this phrase that Jesus says to the disciples falls right in the middle of the passage in the original Greek. It means that we should pay attention to it. We should basically regard it as bolded, highlighted, lit with a neon sign. Okay, on the story. Lord, if it is you, Peter answered him, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. And when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him, and said to him, you have little faith, why did you doubt? When they got back into the boat, the wind ceased. And then those in the boat worshipped him and said, truly, you are the Son of God. So, we all feel fear, and fear can be as invisible as the wind. You can't really see it, but it's a force that affects everything and everyone around us. Fear triggers a reaction in us. It's scientific and it's chemical. When you're afraid, your body produces cortisol and adrenaline, those chemicals that make you choose fight or flight. And because we can't always punch the people that we want to punch, or we can't call our moms like I want to do, we do the adult, civilized thing, which is we hide our fear, we put on a brave face. We try to suppress our fear and control what we can. So today we're going to talk first about what fear looks like when it takes over, because being able to recognize fear and understand what it looks like and what it does will help us in the long run. We won't be caught off guard by the strength of the wind. And then we're going to go on and talk about what we can do when we feel afraid. So first, fear looks like hiding. There's a couple of ways we can think about hiding. Hiding can mean obscuring truth. We're all surprised every time a scandal comes to light. But really, we hide truth when there's something to lose. And that's something that we all feel. One version of this I feel particularly prone to is remaining silent when something ought to be said. We're often silent because we're worried about the consequences, which is really understandable in our world. We have seen that the price for mistakes can be costly. Relationships are broken over careless words. A few words, whether yours or someone else's, could potentially end your career or worse. I recently read about a woman who checked into a hospital to have her tonsils removed. And when she woke up, she had found that part of her foot had been amputated instead. And when investigators went to research how this malpractice had happened, they found that no less than seven people that day involved in the surgery had wondered why the surgeon was working on her foot. And they said nothing. That sounds crazy. But how many times have we been silent because we were afraid of the consequences? When we begin to make choices out of fear instead of out of what is right, it can be costly for many more people than just ourselves. The second kind of hiding is turning away from what makes us feel nervous or uncomfortable. And that can also be costly. Most often, when we do this, we're just looking for comfort, safety, support, or familiarity. So we turn towards people who agree with us. 
We only listen to news sources that we find credible, and we avoid people who may disagree with us. Or simpler, we avoid talking about topics that might be controversial. And in doing so, we cut off meaningful relationships and perspectives from people who are unlike us. We begin to make decisions that benefit people who are just like us. More later on why that's dangerous. Secondly, fear looks like hoarding. We take more resources than we need, and we keep them for ourselves. My husband and I have a tradition every Monday night, well, before we stopped going to the gym, of going to the gym and then grabbing half of pizza from Sliver on our way home. And it's a really great feedback loop for those who've been trying to go to the gym consistently. If you promise yourself pizza for going to the gym, there's a 90% chance you'll actually go. So just a little bit of free life coaching right there. But anyways, so we buy half the pizza. And the thing with Sliver is that for every couple of slices, they'll throw in a few slivers of pizza as an extra. Call it a demonstration of God's abundance or undeserved grace, but there's more pizza than you ordered. So when we get home, we open up the box, and there's four slices and two slivers every time. And it seems pretty simple to divide, but I kid you not, every time I begin to do a complex mathematical equation of the size of the slice, the surface area of crust to actual pizza, I'm not a crust girl, and the density of the toppings. And while I'm calculating this, my husband will just go and grab the biggest slice because either he's less calculated or faster at calculating than I am. And then I resign myself to automatically claiming the next two largest slices for myself and feel a little bitter about it every Monday night. Even though I have more than enough, I can't help but want more for myself. We hoard a lot of things beyond food and supplies. We can hoard credit, wanting to make sure that people know when an idea or success is ours. We hoard relationships when we compare our social lives with how well other people seem to be doing. We hoard being right. If you've ever thought or uttered the words, I told you so, or if you find secret satisfaction in waiting for someone to mess up, that is hoarding righteousness, my friends. We hoard because we're afraid that there's not enough to go around, be it hand sanitizer, success, safety, love. So we take extra when we can, and we want to build up a stash that we hope will protect us from what we can't control. Third, fear looks like hurting. And you can argue that hiding and hoarding actually also fit in this category because hurting just means causing pain or damage to someone else. About two weeks ago, I was scrolling on my phone before bed, like we all know we shouldn't do, but still do it. And I came across this video of an older Chinese man in Bayview who had been out collecting cans when he was jumped and beaten while onlookers, including two security guards, watched. One even said, I hate Asians on the video. And when I watched that, I just started weeping. With the origins of the coronavirus being tied to China and hearing about different events of discrimination happening around the world, I had already been wary of the response. But this happened in our own backyards. I was angry on behalf of this man who didn't deserve what happened to him. And remember that anger can be an indicator that fear is present. 
I thought about how this man could have been my father, walking down the street one evening. And I was fearful for myself as an Asian, because while I've never been beaten, thankfully, I do know what it's like to have a stranger approach you and tell you they hate you just because of how you look. Hurting someone ultimately begins by creating an other in your mind. This is especially easy if you or someone you love has been hurt by someone else or a group of people. You start off by drawing a line between you and them. You start thinking, we're different. I would never do what they did. I would never be so foolish to believe what they believe. And then once you've distanced yourself enough, you begin to think, they are the problem. If we could just get rid of them, if we could take away their power, if we could just silence their words, then things would be better. I feel the divisions of our world today at my core. On many sides of the equation, I seem to be on the historically disadvantaged side. I'm an ethnic minority, a woman, an immigrant, a Christian. For each of those, I can identify a group of people who has made me feel less than in some way, shape, or form. I can identify people who have hurt the people that I love because they fell in one of those categories. But I also often forget that I am on the advantage side of the equation as well. Educated, employed, upper middle class, able-bodied, heterosexual, right-handed, a Christian. How many times have I or someone else in those categories that give me privilege hurt or dismissed someone on the other side? A lot of people have studied the Holocaust and how many people, how so many people could be complicit in such evil. And they've traced it back to the way that people viewed each other. You see, the Nazi propaganda was designed to change people's thinking from relating to each other as an I and a you to human beings who are equal in value but capable of holding different opinions and values to I and it, a human being and an object to be disposed of. The Nazis were capable of such violence because their capacity for empathy disappeared. They did not see their victims as fellow humans. And sometimes I think we also forget to see the humans on the other side of the issue. That's the crazy thing. What will prevent us from doing the things that we hate the most is being able to admit that we share things in common with the people we dislike the most. And I'm not naive. I know that most of the time, the people who most need to admit that they're wrong are, are the ones who will be the last to do so. But we fool ourselves if we think that we are not capable of such violence when put in the right circumstances. Hiding, hoarding, hurting. That's what fear looks like when it's in control. And we see it everywhere in our world today. I see it in myself, to you. Thankfully, we see in the passage that Jesus does not abandon their, the disciples to their fear. He walks towards them, even as they shout at him that he's a ghost and are terrified. And remember that highlighted, bolded, underlined, neon sign phrase I told you to look at that Jesus says, have courage, it is I, 
don't be afraid. In some versions, it is I is translated as I am, which is the Greek rendering of the same name God uses for himself in the Old Testament when Moses asks him for some backup. So a little refresher, Moses is tasked with speaking out against the injustice of Egypt, and fearful guy that he is, he asks God, who will I say has sent me? And God responds, I will be with you. I am, tell them I am has sent you. I am the same God who had parted the seas in Moses' day was with the disciples that night on the water. And he would not let them drown in the chaos. And he will not let you drown. Let's go back to that moment when Peter becomes distracted by his fear. In verse 30, it says, But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him, and said to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? When does Jesus save Peter? Immediately. Immediately after Peter calls for help, Jesus reaches out his hands and grabs hold of Peter. None of this miracle, we should note, is any of Peter's doing at all. It's not in his own power that he walks on water. In fact, he doesn't even have the idea to try walking on water until he sees Jesus do it first. And many people have debated whether Peter got out of the boat out of wanting to display his faith, out of an act of brazen rashness, or even just chasing a spiritual high. Who knows? Who knows why Peter got out of the boat that day? But what we do know is that when he becomes fearful and he feels himself start to sink, his first reaction is to call for Jesus to help him. In John 14, 27, Jesus comforting his disciples says to them, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. In this verse, Jesus is comforting his disciples that the Holy Spirit will be coming in his place. That though he may not be physically present to grab them when they're drowning, that help would still be with them. In fact, in the previous verse before that, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the helper. The helper would be with them. Not so that the disciples would never be afraid again, but because Jesus knew that they probably would be. In 2 Timothy 1.7, the Apostle Paul describes what kind of help God gives his people. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. Or in another translation, power, love, and a sound mind. Both of these verses remind us that we are given this spirit. We are given this help. And that's important because it means two things. One, just like Peter, it's not in our own merit or power that we will be able to deal with fear. And two, just like Peter, we always have access to this help. Even in the moment where we feel most afraid. Even if we haven't prayed in a long time even if we don't know if we believe that God can save us. God doesn't need you to put on a brave face in order to act. In fact, 
The Bible is full of instances where God acts in spite of people's fear and doubt. Which means this, you can always ask for help. You can always ask for help. I'll say it one more time because this is what you should remember if you don't remember anything else. You can always ask for help. In fact, if you were a follower of Jesus, help is already here. You just need to reach out and grab hold of it. We know that God's help doesn't always mean being protected from painful circumstances. So what does it look like when we rely on God's help instead of our own attempts to control fear? I'll go a little out of order, but let's touch on each of these. A sound mind. It's worded slightly differently in the Greek um, in each translation. It can be self-control, self-discipline, a sound mind, sound reasoning. In the Greek, it's sophronismos, which means safe-minded. Scientific studies show that when our amygdala, the part of our brain that registers fear, is triggered, the brain's resources actually get pulled away from our prefrontal cortex, the part of our brain that makes informed decisions. And our IQ actually drops 10 to 15 points when we're afraid. If you've ever made a decision you've regretted, chances are it was because it was made out of haste or fear. We do stupid things when we're afraid. We shove someone over a pack of toilet paper. We stay in a bad relationship longer than we should. We write the wrong answers on a test when we've studied the correct ones. We lie to keep our position. We hurt the people that we love. What makes Peter start to sink? It's that his mind shifts from Jesus to the wind, and he no longer feels safe. But what if we could go through our days and our panicked world with a safe mind? One that recognizes fear and can make a conscious decision to not let it take over. I suffered from some pretty serious anxiety a couple years ago. From the moment I woke up to the moment I went to bed, I felt this fluttery, panicky feeling in my chest. My mind, when left alone, would naturally spiral to worst-case scenarios, and I felt like the world had a lot of things to be afraid of. During this time, I was seeing a counselor, um, which helped a lot. Highly recommend it. And more so, not just because she made me talk about my feelings, which is the classic stereotype, but because she made me talk about my thinking. And I realized that whenever I felt super anxious, it was because I started letting fear tell the story. It was as if fear was this very real character in my mind who would nudge me out of the way and grab the driver's seat and begin to steer my life. And most of the time, I just let it. But what was the game changer for me was realizing that I could use fear in my favor. Like an alarm clock that reminds us to wake up, I had to practice letting fear, feelings of fear, be a wake-up call that reminded me to pray, God, help me. It wasn't always natural. In fact, it was pretty hard. And sometimes I'd go a full hour letting fear take me down a path or unravel me before I even realized that that's what it was doing. But it gave me a lot of hope, and it became a spiritual discipline, befriending my fear instead of just trying to ignore it 
and trying to shorten the length of time between when I realized I was afraid and when I called on God for help. It wasn't a magical formula, but it made me feel like I had a fighting chance because as often as I felt fear, I could be reminded to remember God. Don't be afraid is not a scolding to not feel fear, or not a scolding for feeling fear. It's a wake-up call to pay attention. That wasn't very loud because my hand is far from the mic, but there you go. When we hear it, we're supposed to step back and realize, oh yeah, I think that maybe I might have been afraid in that moment. Because a safe mind is one that knows when it's afraid. And the sooner that we admit our fear, the sooner we can ask for help. So the next time that you're feeling afraid or angry, try just praying this short prayer, God, help me. And see if that changes anything, even just for a moment. See if it changes the way that you see what your options are. Power. The most potent thing about power, or most potent thing about fear is that it makes us feel powerless. And that's why we try all of what I listed previously to try to regain some semblance of control in our lives. But we've been given more power than we know. In addition to being able to recognize and own our own fear, we've been given the power to recognize and understand other people's fear. And in doing so, we get to choose to respond rather than react to the fear that people are feeling. But is that really power Empathy, you might be asking that. I believe that it is perhaps the best tool we have to change the ending of the story. My parents moved to Baton Rouge with our whole family um, when I was two, where the amount of Asians found on any given sitting block would never outnumber the, hand, the fingers on your hand, except for at the Asian grocery store. And my parents encountered deep prejudice. They were looked down upon because of how they looked. Their thick accents were made fun of, probably by people who found Asians unfamiliar and who found the unfamiliar threatening. And then in turn, my parents taught us to fear certain people. We were told certain neighborhoods were bad because of who lived there and that we should cross the street when we recognized certain characteristics of someone. In their fear, they learn to recognize threats based on the color of someone's skin or the way that they talked. Sound familiar? Fear will only breed more fear because it's viral. It's contagious. When you're afraid, you tend to do things that make other people afraid. When someone shoots up your neighborhood, you shoot up theirs. When someone disrespects you, you start attacking their character when you hoard toilet paper, someone else hoards toilet paper. Pain, fear, and hatred will only give birth to more pain, fear, and hatred. Yet we continue to play into the story. But we wouldn't say that Christ was powerless on the cross. He shows compassion and empathy for the very people who put him there. And in doing so, he gave us all an ending that we would have not expected. Hope and restoration instead of fear and punishment. Having compassion on your enemy doesn't mean that we become passive about the injustice of the world. It doesn't mean that we don't stand up for what's right or that we allow people to do harmful things. But rather, it's an ordering of our responses. 
Remember that Jesus does respond to Peter with truth. He reveals his lack of faith. But before that, Jesus saves him. He reaches out his hand and saves Peter from his fear. And then he gives him truth. So yes to truth. Yes to justice. But first, compassion. First, seeing the humanity in the, on the other side of the line. First, remembering that you were also shown compassion. And this will give you a power that so few people have these days. The ability to offer compassion and to see your enemy, not as an other that stands in your way, but as a person who is scared too. And lastly, love. At the end of Matthew 14, after this whole ordeal with Peter and the water, Jesus gets out of the boat and the crowds show up and beg to be healed. You see, Jesus, and by association, the disciples, have gained a reputation for bringing healing wherever they go. Is that the reputation that Christians have in our world today? John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. 1 John 4 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. If the world will know us, by our love, and perfect love casts out fear, then the world should know the disciples of Jesus by our response to fear. When all is said and done, people will be able to spot the disciples of Christ by the way we respond, with fear or with love. And here's the trick to telling the difference. The key distinction between fear and love is who we are focused on. Because fear looks out for me, and that's what makes it so seductive. We love when things are about us. Fear loves to talk about me. It talks about what I need to do to stay safe. It tells me what other people will think. It helps me do a thorough analysis, always grounded in the most objective research, of all the things that could potentially go wrong or hurt me at all times. It warns me to stay safe, and because the world is a scary place, and people are unpredictable and only looking out for themselves, I listen to it. But love, love is not about me. And this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Love is laid out for us on the cross. Love is costly to the giver. Love values the good of the other above personal comfort, preference, security which means that usually fear feels like the better option. But the only thing that will free us from fear is to experience love. The only thing that will free us from a life of looking out for ourselves and our own best interests is that someone else is already doing those things. He's already done those things. On the cross, Jesus faced all that we have to fear head on. Isolation, poverty, pain, false accusation, Shame, abandonment, death. He faced it head on, not because it wasn't scary for him, but because love was stronger. And in his resurrection, he proved that perfect love does indeed cast out fear. Fear does not get the final say. I really disliked the game of tag as a child. People chasing you around, trying to catch you, is not my idea of a fun afternoon. And a variation of tag that I hated the most was called amoeba or blob tag. Maybe you've played it. It's where you start with one person who's it, 
and then they chase everyone around, and as soon as they catch another person, they link arms, and now they're supposed to move as a unit, tagging other people, and as more people get tagged, they link arms, and eventually it's just this huge mass of people that you can't outrun, and the only ending to the game is when everyone has been caught. If I had to play tag, I much preferred freeze tag, because in freeze tag, once you're tagged, you, ha you can't move, but anyone who is free can tap you on the shoulder and unfreeze you. If you've ever watched kids playing freeze tag, it's funny because sometimes the kid who's frozen and has been freed is so resigned and bored and not even in the game anymore that he doesn't realize right away when he's been unfrozen. And then you'll usually see the other kid who's freed him yelling, hey, you're unfrozen, go get the others, while continuing on his little rescue campaign. And fear, to me, feels like amoeba tag, where as it catches one person, it begins to snowball. Fear begets fear, which begets more fear. And then soon we're all trying to trap each other or outrun each other or just play and survive. The only ending to the game is when we're all trapped. But the Spirit of God introduces a new variable into the game, the ability to become unfrozen. If you can be unfrozen, then the goal is no longer just to survive. It's to free as many people as possible from being stuck. The love of God is what will set us free, as cliche as that sounds. It is the long-awaited tap on the shoulder in a game of freeze tag. We stand there frozen, locked in our own little worlds, unable to live lives of unshackled generosity or grace because of what we are afraid of and how we see each other. And then love crashes into us like a rambunctious seven-year-old and yells, you're free. You are free to go and live and be and fail and get hurt. You don't have to stand frozen any longer. You don't have to live your life in fear. And if you get frozen again, help is here. Love frees us to go and liberate others. Tapping people on the shoulder who have been frozen in fear for a very long time. And if enough of us are running around trying to unfreeze others, then fear will never win. We will all get frozen sometimes. We will all feel fear. And it's not being any less of a Christian just to be afraid. But being able to recognize our fear for what it is and then what we choose to do with that can mean the difference between sinking and walking on water. So ask for help. Grab hold of the hand that's been outstretched to you, outstretched for you, and then go and unfreeze a few others. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, we thank you for that promise that you give us. That is true not just in the moment of our salvation, but in every moment, every hour. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We thank you that the truth is simple, yet so profound, that when we ask for help, you respond so quickly 
immediately, and you give us a new way to see the world and interact with the people around us. May we be defined by your love more than our fears.